Well, on, on Good Friday, we, we set aside a special time uh, to reflect and worship Jesus for his work on the, on the cross. And I don't know if you've noticed it before, but there's a reason why uh, Protestant churches display an empty cross uh, as compared to um, perhaps other, uh, other um, uh, systems of belief that might have uh, the crucifix of uh, Jesus fixed on the cross. Um, and the reason for that is, is that as Protestants, we glory in the fact that Jesus not only died, but that he rose from the dead, that he didn't stay dead, he didn't stay on the cross. And uh, it proves and guarantees his efficacy of what he did on the cross. It's the resurrection that gives us the hope that our sins are covered and that our eternal life is provided for us. Um, it is, uh, we certainly don't want to diminish Jesus's work on the cross. Both are equally important for our salvation, but uh, tonight we want to take a step back uh, and gather together and, and focus on what the death of Christ means for us today. And we've been going through the Gospel of Mark now for quite some time, and we're just at about the end of it. Uh, and it's by God's good pleasure that the preaching calendar lands on the, the, the story of Jesus' death right here on Good Friday, and his story of his resurrection comes on uh, this Sunday. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read verses 33 through 37 that uh, simply describes the, the death of Jesus. And then we're going to look at what his death means for us according to verses 38 through 47. So follow along with me, if you would, starting in verse um, 33. It was noon. Darkness came over the entire land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud cry, loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. So someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. So after three years, the religious leaders finally got their wish. Jesus was dead. And uh, as much as they relished in their self-perceived victory, it was actually to their chagrin because it, the, the death of Christ meant far more than they could have ever imagined in that moment. It was the death of Christ that was the foreordained plan of God the Father to redeem the world. And it is shown chiefly in verse 38 when it says that the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now you might think, what in the world does drapery have to do with God's plan to redeem the world? 
And this curtain wasn't just any curtain. This was a curtain that was in the deepest part of the, the temple, the holiest place. There were levels of specialness within the temple that as you got further and further in, the more restrictive it was. There was a section for Gentiles, and there was a section for women, and then there was a section as you went further in for Israelite men, and then it was more specific, then it was only for priests, and then there was this place called the holiest of the holies. This is where it was believed that God li lived, and it was so holy that only one person, the chief priest that year, could go in only once a year to offer up the blood of the sacrifice upon the altar for the sins of the people. And before he went into the Holy of Holies, there was a time in which they would actually tie a rope to themselves. So that when they walked in, if they were not out of there in a certain amount of time, or if they felt a certain movement, that maybe the high priest had died in there in the presence of God, so that they could use that rope and drag him out of there, so that they would not have to go unauthorized into the Holy of Holies and meet the same kind of fate that the high priest met. The Holy of Holies was separated from the priestly class by this huge drape made of fine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarn. It was embroidered uh, with gold cherubim. And it was this curtain that was torn in two the moment that Jesus breathed his last. And what that symbolized was that the sacrifice for sin no longer depended on a human priest to enter the Holy of Holies once a year. The sacrifice on Jesus on the cross that Jesus offered up was not a once-a-year thing, but rather a once-for-all-time thing. It is in Him that forgiveness is complete. In Him, access to God is given to you and to me and all people through Jesus Christ. When the veil was torn, it was as if the grace of God was unleashed from the temple and sent into the world, not to the average Jewish person, but to the entire world, all who would trust in Christ Jesus. And so in the verses that follow, Mark shows us how this gospel, how this good news uh, of Jesus dying for our sins is available for everyone, regardless of who you are and what you have done. So let's look briefly now at how the rest of the narrative shows that this is universally available um, through the death of Christ to all who believe. And if you're reading in your Bible or your phone, uh, please note that I am, I'm going to go out of order here a little bit, uh, but that is by design, and uh, you'll probably, probably see why here. Um, notice first that the death of Christ is good news for the oppressed, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. This is represented chiefly by the women who were present at Jesus' death. Verses 40 through 41. 
There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and the younger, uh, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. No, don't make the mistake of thinking that these are just minor details. Mark, in the way that he wrote his gospel, did not waste one word. This is a very important detail here. Um, this is the first instance that Mark mentions Mary Magdalene, and, and another one he will mention uh, is that uh, the fact that Jesus relieved her of some serious demonic uh, possession. And there's a lot of debate whether or not this, this Mary, the mother of James, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, in the end, it really doesn't matter. All that matters here in these verses is the gender. Salome, we don't Again, her name is of little importance. What matters is that they were women. And it matters um, because when Jesus was dying on the cross, who wasn't there? It was his disciples, right? It was his disciples, the men who professed to never leave him and never forsake him, regardless of what happened to them. But yet, at the first sign of danger, what did they do? They split. They got out of there. They wanted nothing to do with the persecution that came to Jesus. And here at this moment, with the exception of, of maybe John, they're all hiding in a corner somewhere and waiting for this all to blow over so that they can re-enter society once again. But who is there? These women are there. And these women here in Jesus' day were marginalized. Women were often viewed as property. They had no rights. Their testimonies were not even admissible in, in court. Um, they were essentially second-class citizens. Yet in Christ, they found life. In Christ, they found belonging. In Christ, they found validation. In Christ, they found equal footing with the disciples, whereas these men were cowards, these women were boldly showing their love and their faith and stood by Jesus. And in the same way, Jesus' death made a, made a place for the marginalized today and the disenfranchised. In him, the marginalized don't need a political fight. They don't need to take to the streets and demand anything. They don't need to go on social media and complain about how bad the world is. They just need to repent of their sins and come to Jesus Christ. And perhaps, oftentimes, the sin that most needs to be repented of is the idolatry of marginalization itself. Jesus welcomes the downtrodden. He welcomes the weary. He welcomes the lost. He welcomes the burdened. He welcomes the suffering and the marginalized, but only on his terms. And his terms are, I love you enough to have died for you, but I love you enough to not keep you where you are at. Come to Christ and find freedom. Notice second that this gospel is good news for the Jews. Now, I don't want to linger on this one too long because unless I'm completely mistaken, I don't think we have a, a, a huge Jewish population running around here in Mora. But this is important here. Look at verses 42 through 46. It says, When it was already evening, because it was day, 
the day of preparation, that is the day before the, the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion that uh, he, he gave the corpse to, to Joseph. And after he, uh, he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the, the tomb. So here again, we have an individual that is putting himself at great risk for asking for Jesus's body. He is not only a Jew, but this Joseph of Arimathea was also part of the Sanhedrin, which was the very court that condemned Jesus. But he was no average member of the Sanhedrin. In fact, verse 43 tells us that he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. In the Gospels of Matthew and John, they tell us that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. That he followed Jesus, but did not make it known to his, his peers. But now, in asking for the body of Jesus, he is going public with his faith. Um, the, it was very customary for Jews to give proper burials, even to criminals, because they held to the, the image of God that much. But for Rome, they would often leave criminals that were hung on the cross up there for days after they had died. Sometimes they would leave them up there until their bodies started decomposing. This was a way in which Rome deterred crime. That if people were to look upon that and see what was going on, that they would keep themselves in line. So it was not only bold of Joseph to be a Jew who would take care of this criminal who was hated by his peers, but he was also bold enough to go to Rome and say, I want to give this man a proper burial. His actions show that he was not only looking forward to the kingdom of God, but he was willing to take the kingdom of God into his arms and deliver it into the grave in order to germinate so that his fellow Jews in the world could come to know and be admitted by this king that he was looking to. So we've seen how the death impacts Jewish folks and the marginalized. Now in verse 39, the gospel reaches the Gentiles. These are the people that were cut off from God and the Israelites. And uh, these are the ones that now have been brought into God's family. And it's shown in the story of the centurion. This is a Roman soldier who would have been the, um, uh, the kind of guy that would um, verify the deaths of people on the cross. Uh, he was uh, a commander of a hundred other soldiers, and they would certify these deaths. And more than likely, this centurion saw hundreds, if not thousands, of crucifixions in his life. Verse 39 says, when the centurion saw who was standing opposite of him, the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is probably the only time 
in the thousands of crucifixions that this man had seen, that he looked upon the man dying and said, this is the Son of God. Now, there are some commentators that have wanted to say that uh, he was merely saying that Jesus was a son of a God and that he was putting Jesus into the pantheon that, that Rome had at that point. But the, the Greek uh, in this, this verse really does not allow for that. Rather, this centurion, when he saw the manner in which Jesus had died, he believed. This is the first time anywhere in the entire gospel of Mark in which someone declares Jesus to be the Son of God. Peter called him the Messiah in Mark. He did not call him the Son of God. This is the first time that someone other than Christ has proclaimed him to be the Son of God, and it comes out of the mouth, out of a Roman centurion. That is good news, because it comes out of the most unlikely of people. This, friend, shows us that in the death of Christ, the curtain has been torn for people like him. And it's been torn for people like you. And it's been torn for people like me. Jesus' death has opened the door for grace, mercy, and forgiveness for the marginalized, the Jew, and for the Gentile. So as we ponder tonight, I urge you to think on Jesus and believe that he truly was and is the Son of God and look forward to his kingdom. Partly inaugurated two days from now, fully brought in when he returns to us in glory. Let's pray.